The Fail On Podcast, episode 035. But I had wanted, desired, and lusted for growth. I hated being stagnant. I hated, I would hate if as we're doing this podcast now on Friday, I would hate if I had done nothing from last Friday any different. And that terrifies the shit out of me. To know that a month from now, I'm going to have done stuff that's made me broaden my horizons, spoken to different people, in experience, different experience, had my eyes open to a new perspective, tried a new meal, tried a new sandwich, whatever, walked a different path. If I know a month from now, I haven't gained any of that, and I'm in exactly the same spot. And even if you fail, even if I take on 10 new projects and every single one of those fail, then I've learned a million things to do so that those don't happen again. Welcome to the Fail On Podcast, where we explore the hardships and obstacles today's industry leaders face on their journey to the top of their fields through careful insight and thoughtful conversation. By embracing failure, we'll show you how to build momentum without being consumed by the result. Now, please welcome your host, Rob Nunnery. Hey there, and welcome to the show that believes leveraging failure is not only the fastest way to learn, but is also the fastest way to grow your business and live a life of absolute freedom. In a world that only likes to share successes, we dissect the struggle by talking to honest and vulnerable entrepreneurs, and this is a platform for their stories. And today's story is of my buddy, Steve Sims. Steve is the founder of the luxury concierge company, Bluefish. He is known for being able to make the impossible absolutely possible for his clients. From getting a private underwater submersible tour of the Titanic to private dinners in the academia at the feet of Michelangelo's David and Florence to having a private romantic dinner in the Sistine Chapel with a performance by Andrea Bocelli. There's nothing Steve Sims can't get. And he also just published his book, Blue Fishing, The Art of Making Things Happen. We'll be discussing how Steve got his start in entrepreneurship by taking on an impossible challenge while working as a doorman in Hong Kong. We'll go into Steve's aha moment after a yacht party in Monaco that he uses to remind himself of his true value proposition for his business even today. And we'll go into the biggest fear that drives Steve forward every single day to take on new challenges and continue to create one-of-a-kind experiences for his clients and himself. But first, luckily, all I travel with now is a backpack, and I'm actually packing right now for Peru, going to Machu Picchu. But the only reason I, all I need is a backpack is for a simple reason. It's clothing from an innovative Toronto apparel company called Unbound Merino. They have clothes made out of merino wool that you can wear for months on end without ever needing to have it washed. So this means I can travel with less clothes since they clean themselves. And they really do clean themselves as long as you hang them up after. Even if you're drenched in sweat and you just hang them up on a hanger overnight, you can wake up in the morning, smell that sucker, and it will smell brand spanking new. So give it a try. Check out the show notes page for an exclusive fail-on discount that you won't be able to get anywhere else. And if you'd like to stay up to date on all the fail-on podcast interviews and key takeaways from each guest, simply go to failon.com and sign up for our newsletter at the bottom of the page. That's failon.com. 
Take me back to the first time where you kind of entered entrepreneurship. The first time that somebody actually gave you money in exchange for a product or service that you created. Yeah, I think those are two different questions. As an Irish lad in London, I was always questioning things. So without realizing, that's what the mentality of an entrepreneur is. You know, they, they see something square and they've got something round and they've got to find out how it fits or they don't. And it's those that kind of question how it can happen that are entrepreneurs. So I think before I knew it was a, a cool thing to be, I always had that kind of inquisitive, questionable nature. The first time I actually had that, that challenge, and I remember this very specifically, I was doing parties in Hong Kong. And someone said to me, oh, you know, you're super connected. I want to go to Monaco. He said, you know, can you hook me up? And it was the Formula One Grand Prix in Monaco. And I was like, absolutely, no problem. And I went back home and tried Google. Well, not Googling. We didn't have Google in the 80s. I went back and tried to work out where the bloody hell Monaco was. So I'd accepted the challenge. And that's, that was, I think, another sign that I was an entrepreneur. We jump in and go, yeah, we can do that. And then go, you know, shit, fuck, how do we do that? So... I went back and then tried to work out how to do it. And of course, the more I did, the more I was capable of and the more I realized how I was capable and competent in uncomfortable situations. Joe Polish says, you know, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. I always found myself comfortable. In fact, I, I get scared when things are going smoothly. I get scared when things are running on track. And I think I pers purposefully can like try to interrupt that. You know, I'm not one of these guys that can operate on Zen. I want the challenge. You know, I love fast motorcycles. I love racetracks. I love motocross. I like boxing. I like MMA. I like it. I like to get into a scenario where I actually don't know anything. What were you doing? Party? You said you're doing parties in Hong Kong. What's that even mean? Yeah. So I got the job. And there'll be other places you can find the story, so I'll keep it short. I managed to get a job in Hong Kong as a stockbroker, and I landed on the Saturday, and I was fired on the Tuesday. So they realized that I was just full of shit and didn't know what I was doing. And so being big and ugly, I got the only job that I was competent to do. I ended up being a doorman on uh, nightclubs in Hong Kong, in Wan Chai. And then um, I just started throwing some of these parties myself to get more bar money out of it, and I cut off the door. And then I started selling the parties sponsored by the banks and the jet chart companies and the jewelers. Because I actually thought to myself, you know, if you've got two people and both of them are going to give you 10% commission, then work with someone who's spending a million dollars and not someone who's working, selling 10 bucks. So I always went for rich clients because they didn't need a, to, to spend more for it to make more. And so that's what I was doing. I was just trying to get really affluent clients. And my, my, delusion on, my delusion was that once I had all those rich clients, I could go back to the bank and get a job. Because as, as a bricklayer from London, I wanted the complete polar opposite of how I'd been brought up, which was riding a shitty motorcycle, wearing a black t-shirt and getting into fights. I wanted to be the complete polar opposite to that. You know, fast forward now, I'm 51 years old and I'm rolling around on shitty motorcycles and uh, don't get into so many fights now. But... Uh, you know, back in the t-shirts and stuff like that. So I've done a full circle. Got it. Got it. So was that the was that kind of your entry into what is now Bluefish back yeah, in Hong Kong? Yeah, it was. It was. And um, like not I've, technically Bluefish, right? Because you're just kind of hustling at that point. It, I've never changed. As of yesterday, I don't think by naming it Bluefish, I changed anything. I, I, so I tell a lie. I did try to change it in the early 2000s, screwed it up, and uh, then was able to just hit pause and go back. So... Without realizing it, a lot of people have this misconception that when you're dealing with someone affluent, that they're incredibly smart. 
Now, the truth of the fact is rich people aren't necessarily smart just because they're rich. It means that they're smart at one thing that got them to that position. And it could be anything. It could be the best manure. It could be, you know, shoes. It could be absolutely anything. But for the rest of their life and knowledge, they just they, they don't know. But you get a lot of people that speak to people with money, very precocious. Oh, good afternoon. So, you know, you know, it's like the shit don't stink kind of thing, you know. And I didn't have that. So you're able to connect with them. I don't know if I was able. Yeah, I was able to connect because I didn't, I didn't shield who I was. And I was very ignorant to the fact that other people were given these fake personas. I was just like, yeah, I could do that. You know, and that was it. I wasn't trying to be anything other than me. Because being me was remarkably easy, you know? And then I suddenly, not, you know, the whole thing, you know, five years to become an overnight success. After like five years, and I'm kind of doing this stuff throughout Asia and Monaco, and I'm now living in Switzerland, and I'm, you know, flying around the world, and I'm doing it. And I suddenly started looking and seeing, well, that person looks weird. Who's that? Oh, he sells jets. Well, why is he looking so standoffish? Why is he not getting plastered with us in the corner where all the rich people are, you know? Because he didn't know how to communicate by being him in that scenario. Me, I would just go balls to the wall and I didn't care. And if it resonated with you, great. If it didn't, take care. I'm not your person, (laughs) you know? So I think the stupidity factor and the ignorance to how I should, in air quotes, have acted in in that circle gave me the leg up. And as the years went on, I've just refused to call. If I introduce a client to another client, I'll introduce them as Mr. and Mr., okay? But if I'm speaking to any client, it's Bob, Bill, Sally, you know, first name terms every single time. I'm not going to jump on your, you know, on your business card title. I don't care how many people work for you. If your joke's not funny, I'm not going to laugh at it. You know, so it's, it's that kind of stuff. It's very easy just keeping that basic. Got it. Got it. What is, what were the biggest struggles getting started? Because it seems like, like the Monaco thing. You had to go figure it out, right? Was that the case at the beginning for everything, pretty much? Like they would give you a request, and you would just okay, I gotta, I gotta figure out yeah, how to do this. And it's it's still the case, okay. And I well, kind much, of like it. Much better connected now. I'm much so better little, connected now. It's, easier. It's a little easier, but I do search out those that kind of like make me kind of like scratch my head a bit. I had a client that wanted to get married in the Vatican by the Pope. You know, that one was kind of okay, you know. So I like... You didn't know the Pope at the time? No, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't. I just knew he was a guy in a big white dress. But apart from that, um, no, it was... But it was, it was where I am now... I'm able to go out to people in certain circles and have them guide me or maybe make a phone call or something like that. So yes, being connected makes things a lot easier now. But in the old days, yes, it was kind of, how the hell do I do it? And of course, every time you'd go and ask someone, they don't want to help you because it sounds it sounds crazy. It sounds stupid. But when you've got those credentials behind you, that you've already achieved those things. And Forbes is writing a seven-page article on you, and you're you know being seen with everyone. You know, then that makes things a lot easier. But in the old days, it was a case of, well, how do I do that? And I just remember, just remember my my dad, big thick Irish guy, used to just say, you know, how do you eat an elephant? You know, inch by inch. And that's how I kind of took it. You know, this guy wants to go to Monaco. All right, first things first. What the fuck's Monaco? You know, and just work it from there. What do you want to do there? And we would then develop from there. So we just really took the big, amazing, impossible idea, cut it down into a million easily achievable ones. What's been the biggest struggle from, you know, looking back from when you started, 
any major like setbacks or failures or things you couldn't achieve that you're like, why am I doing this? Yeah, again, so you got about three questions in there. For um, so there wasn't anything that I couldn't achieve because if I tell you it's going to be done, it's going to be done. Now, in my early stages, I would look at it and go, well, that's going to cost fifty grand, and then it would end up costing sixty. And I can't go back to the client and tell him it's going to cost him an extra ten grand. Not only have I not made any commission, I've just bloody paid for his event. But hey, I told you it was going to cost fifty grand, and I told you it was going to get done. So, luckily, that did me well by sticking to my guns there. The problem I had was like most entrepreneurs, I accepted everything. You know, I was the yes man. I could do that. Yes, I'll do that. So I took on a ton of stuff, which I shouldn't have taken on. I got involved with clients that I shouldn't have had as clients. Uh, I accepted Why? the chat. Were... Again, being the, um, I did a, did a video a while back called the chug test. And there's a picture that I have in my office. And it's a uh, very, everyone talks about that aha moment. So I was working for Ferrari in 96, 7, and 8. Great contract. Living in Geneva, I bought because, again, I wanted to you know, appear to be good. Now, I've always had a motorcycle, so I even had a motorcycle then. But I had this little old Ferrari Dino, okay? And I was wearing tailor-made suits and taking out my earrings and trying to pronounce words properly. <laughs> and I went down to Monaco, and I drove down there in the Dino, which was a great drive. You know, one of my greatest experiences driving down there. And I went to a yacht party, and I came off this yacht, and my Dino was there. And the yacht next to us was bigger than the yacht party that was on. Now, again, not to labor on it, I'm on a Ferrari yacht party in Monaco with a Ferrari parked outside. That's pretty good. Life's not bad, yeah. But in my head, the yacht next to me was prettier than the one that I was on. So I literally reversed my Ferrari so that the Ferrari could be in front of that yacht. And I got a picture of myself taken in front of that yacht. Now, of course, this was back in the days where you got your roll of film out, you put it in the post, and like four years later, you got your photographs back. <laughs> and I remember sitting uh, in my office. I was in Switzerland, and I was drinking whiskey. Funny enough, I would always go home, put my T-shirts back on and stuff like that, because I didn't, I didn't like that uniform, but I felt I had to have it. And I got these photographs, and I got this picture, and my wife said, that wasn't the yacht we were on. And then she went, oh, was the other one not good enough? And it just suddenly hit me that I was conforming. And I didn't like this. Bottom line of it is, I did a McKernan, I cried like a baby, <laughs> and I just sat there, and I just, I drank that entire bottle of shivers myself, felt like shit, and just suddenly thought I'd become the person I didn't want to become. So I woke up in the morning, felt like crap, hadn't eaten, as I said, I'd gone through this entire bottle of whiskey, head hurt, stomach hurt, photograph was still there, my office was a bloody mess, I don't know what time I'd crawled into bed, so I'm stinking, and I just woke up and I went, fuck it. That's not me again. I'm not being that guy again. Sold the Dino, stopped wearing the suits, and was able to reset. So that was my aha ugly moment. So that was one of my stumbling blocks. So when I do meet entrepreneurs, I tell them, stay you, because it's you that people like. And if you change and adapt, you may not take those people with you. Okay? So just, just try and be you. It's, it's amazing how many entrepreneurs want to create a unique company. You know, they want to be individual when they're already individual. So what do they do? They try to become individual by looking like every other bloke with a hoodie or every other bloke with a Ferrari or every other bloke with the same suit. And so They end up looking the same. 
You know, if they're in IT, they look like that. If they're in banking, they look like that. You know, it's amazing. They try to be unique and end up looking like the rest of the pack. Right, right. So it seems like you never really had the issue of of going through this phase that a lot of people go through where, where it's, okay, what, what business am I going to start? It seems like you kind of fell into it through being the door guy and you're like, okay, there's opportunity here. Uh, yeah, to a point. I was going after the banks to try and sponsor it because I wanted to keep the relationships going with the bank because, again, I wanted to be a banker. It was about six years into it, and I'm now in Switzerland because there were more banks there. And I was doing a lot of the European stuff, you know, the Wimbledons, the Stad, all that kind of stuff. It was my wife that walked in one day, and she said, look, you get up three days a week to go into the banks, and you put on a suit, you take your earrings out. They don't pay you. You know, but you're still in there, you know, trying to network, which I'm really crap at. I'm terrible <laughs> at networking. Really am bad at it. And you then come home and throw a party once or twice a month. Your rent's paid, your cars are paid for, your bike's paid for, your whiskey's paid for, you know. Just imagine if you stopped doing the banky thing. And and it was my wife that came up with that. And so we're like, Yeah, let's try it. You know, let's give it a go for a couple of years. And um we did, and you know, like twenty odd years later, we're still doing it, and people are still paying us to do it. So I'm going to keep doing it. How big is the team now? Eight, and I, I laugh at that because uh, about 2004, I think we had something like about 40. This was like pre-recession. I had, I bought a building, and I had the top floor of this building. Uh, it was a three-story building. I bought the entire building. This was at a time where our assets and possessions were everything. So I had this bloody great building. I had loads of staff. We had loads of stuff going on. And I never used to go into the office. I used to work from home. And then before the recession, I remember thinking it was the worst time in the world. Before the recession came, I looked at the figures and I realized that, you know, the 80-20% rule, you know, that would have been great. I was on like, you know, 90-10. And there were only a few people in the bloody office actually doing everything. And I was paying them just to turn up. I just thought, screw it. So I fired everyone. And I asked everyone to reapply for that job. Of course, a lot of them went, you know, screw you and walked away. A couple of the ones that were good didn't want to uh, reapply. A couple of the others did. And then I came over to L.A., and as I came over to LA, of course, I didn't have the rent. Uh, I didn't have the mortgage. I didn't have the payroll. You know, I'd sold uh, everything. And I thought that was a really stupid thing to do. You know, because we'd just come off of being the official concierge of the Grammys, the Kentucky Derby, New York Fashion Week. You know, we were press every bloody week, you know, TV, radio. You know, we were, we were it. And I thought, I've just sold it. I'm bloody gone across country to LA. You know, what a twat. And I remember sitting in the tea leaf, a coffee bean and tea leaf on Sunset Boulevard and opening up a magazine where there was this art- a newspaper about this article about the impending doom. And the crash that's coming, not a case of if, a case of when. Are you ready? I'm like, that looks bloody funny. You know, the whole world's going to end. And like three months later, we're looking around for office space. And as everyone knows, in like 07 or 08, it was like a switch, wasn't it? It just went bing. And I was like, I owed nothing. And, you know, I'd sold everything on like a fire sale. And I remember losing a bit of money, not on, not on my building, uh, I actually, you know, you, that was the time then where you thought your building was worth four times as much. I sold it for only three times as much. And I'm kicking myself thinking, I lost all that money. I remember watching it and it was up, it was up for sale for 25% of what I'd paid for it. And I was like, damn, you know? So <laughs> right. it was one of those things that um, someone up top was looking out for me. What's, what's the biggest struggle now in the business? St- I think still 
being careful to what you accept. You know, we were talking about this just before. Whenever I, you know, the, the, first, the first two months of every year are very busy for me because it's all the award seasons. Everything in the world kicks off the first two months. Every award show, every fashion week, whether it's Milan, London, Paris, New York, all the big events, you know, Super Bowl, all the biggest music events, the Grammys, the Oscars, the first two months of every year is the nuts. You know, I literally sit there in November and go, brace yourself, you know, and then it comes to the People's Choice Awards at the beginning of January and bang, it's gone. Okay, and then afterwards into March, I relax. We don't do a lot with the Kentucky Derby and, you know, Formula One kicks off and all those kind of things. But I get to relax in March. So in March, I was in um, in March, I was in three different countries. And then I was in Israel and Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. And then I'm back here again and I was up at Tesla. So I never got the chance to relax because I was taking on too much. So that wasn't that wasn't in three different countries on vacation. That was work. Oh, no, I, I <laughs> The good thing about my lifestyle is I get to see different places. So I always try to chirp out a couple of days for that little vacation. You know, like all entrepreneurs, we can't go to the beach and sit there for a week because we go cold turkey by, you know, third hour after landing. So my life is pretty cool in any case. But no, there was no, no planned vacations. It was just going. And so I think I took too much on and uh, it just, I had to just like pull the plug. And again, having a good partner in my wife to be able to say, you know, force me. Just being able to lean over, and it doesn't have to be your wife, your girlfriend, it could be someone on Facebook, LinkedIn, whatever, your next door neighbor, but just being able to walk up to someone, look them in the eye and say, don't let me work on a Tuesday. Now, we know as entrepreneurs, we're powerhouses and we'll bulldoze over you if we want to do this, but our word as entrepreneurs is gospel. So if we tell you don't allow us to do it on Tuesday. All we're really doing is echoing it to ourselves and me confirming that we're not going to do it on a Tuesday. Because I'm now not going to make myself look stupid in front of you by trying to do something on Tuesday when I've already told you I'm not. So I do use my partner as that. And I, I had to just go, right, stop, done. Reset. And I do. And a reset is tough. You were talking about, you know, your rent and you potentially being able to move. Being able to reset uh, yourself and, and, and then create a recharge. And I remember uh, Cameron Harold was an incredibly intelligent guy. He actually was saying that, you know, every night you think nothing of plugging your phone in, think nothing of making sure your car's fueled up, but you don't pay attention to yourself. When was the last time you fueled yourself up? When was the last time you recharged yourself? And uh, he puts it a lot more eloquently than me because he can say long words. But uh, <laughs> It, it did cause me to think when I heard him say that. And so now I actually plan different things. And I, I will literally plan a meeting that's like an hour and a half away from my home. And I know that sounds stupid. Just so I have to ride my motorcycle for an hour and a half there and an hour and a half back. That gives me three hours where you can't call me. I can't have a coffee. I don't have to you know, look at Facebook. I don't have to do any of this shit. For three hours, I'm done. And I'm in my zen. So I do force myself to do those things now. That's good. That's, that's interesting because there's not – I was talking to somebody else about this. There's not too many times nowadays where you can be in that kind of situation where you're, you're totally unplugged from having a phone in your pocket or having it on or being able to look at it or having email go off or TV off and going on in that other room. Yep, yep. Like, so I think it's really important to find, like, like you said, your little Zen space where you're forced to focus on the road and be in your own head. Yeah, and I know a lot of people think that Zen is kind of like, you know, sitting there cross-legged singing Kumbaya. And that 
again, like a lot of entrepreneurs, I fold up and I sit there for longer than 30 seconds and everything's coming through my head. And so for me to find my zen, I need to be in the middle of a boxing match. I need to be like skiing. I need to be riding a motocross bike so that you're out of your headspace. And that's what I need to do. I need to get get all the other stuff out of the way. Because as we all know, you know, if, if, you, if you stop thinking for a second when you're in the middle of the boxing match, you're going to punch you in the head. If you're going into a corner on a motocross bike and you think, did I send that email? Bang, you're, you're flawed, you're flat. So you have to focus all your energy on that. And then what happens, and this is something really beautiful, is when you then step back into normality, everything falls back into your head in priority. So the stuff that you were really worrying about gets in order and maybe doesn't even come back in. You go, what was I worrying about that for? You know, I got this bloody Apple Watch. Um, I can hate those things. <laughs> because now, not only does my phone actually chirp and chip and vibrate and try to grab my attention, of which I can throw it on the seat or in a jacket or something like that. Now I've got my bloody hand vibrating and, and buzzing, telling me to stand up, telling me a text has come in, you know, telling me that, you know, McKernan's tweeted. Yeah, I don't <laughs> care. So I got rid of that. I absolutely dumped that thing. One thing you mentioned that I'm curious about is it seems like, so you need to take a break because you're overextending yourself, it seems. So are you still a lot like, are you... Like, are you the magic for the business? Like, are you not able to say, okay, I'm going to take these new projects on, but I'm going to scale my team, maybe not to 40 like you had, but build my team out a little bit more so we can take on more work, so we can increase revenue, so we can... Are you thinking that way? Or are you just thinking like, I'm happy with where my business is at? I want time for myself. We have a good life. Where are you at? All of those. Okay. Like a good tailor, a, you know, a good hairdresser, a, a, good, um, a good tradesman. Most people come to you because of you and trying to replicate you is pretty hard because we've already talked about how individual you are. So when I'm dealing with clients, I've got a lot, a lot of clients that um, I may have one of the team work with and they'll be like, yeah, I want to do it. Get Steve to call me. You know, <laughs> or, you know, I'll have Steve. And then I'll say to one of my team, oh, we need that backstage access or we need you know, this from you know, Elton John or this from Sting or this done with Angelina Jolie, call this person and they will call that person and I go, yeah, we can do it. Get Steve to call me. So there's a lot of connections that I have which won't allow me to, to do that. And that's okay. But I have the team really help me. And we have a lot of team that are on call as and when necessary. So when we did this um, Vatican thing, we had about 30 people over there, you know, that were working on it. So I get people in around the world that I need as and when I need them. But the eight are my core team but we are actually building now a a version of bluefish and um i don't want to say an entry level but a different level because there's a lot of people that don't need a bespoke concierge with the connections we have you may never want to go for a midnight tour of the vatican you may never want to have the dinner at the feet of michelangelo's david you may not want to but you may want a good ticket option you may want a great perk at a hotel you may want to get into a restaurant where it's sold out so we're actually building another scalable model now and that's one that's one of the things on my plate now so i'm really looking forward to that coming out so it's a different chapter but uh I really just jump into the stuff that excites me. So if someone comes up with a, or if one of the team come over and say, hey, you know, got this client, blah, blah, was looking at doing this, I may go, ooh, I want to play with that. And then that's where I could be my worst enemy and jump in. <laughs> got it. So on the, on the 
current business model, not talking about the new project that you're looking at with kind of the lower tiered service. What's the actual business model? How do you guys actually make money? Obviously, put you put people in cool situations, but how do you actually make money? Are those just flat fees they give you, or what's the what's the model? So the model the model we have now with Bluefish is it's a, a paid membership program. So it's five it starts at five thousand dollars membership, okay, uh, a year, and we need your commitment to be commi- committed to you. So it's five grand a year. It starts there, it goes up, and then what we do is there's certain certain experiences or certain day-to-day stuff like hotels, transfers, flights that we get anywhere between 6 to 10% commission on, okay? Because of our volume, you know, you, you may be traveling 365 days a year. We're booking 400 rooms per week. So we get better volume discounts, okay? So we can turn around and give you like a $350 room. We may give it to you for $350, but we may have upgraded you by two levels or we may have given it to you for 290 And of that 290 we got 29 bucks. Okay, so we will generate some commissions from there. And we're open to our clients on, on the transparency of what we do. But it's the it's the planning stuff that really comes in. So it's, I want to go to Leonardo DiCaprio's party at the Cannes Film Festival. I want to go to the pits of Ferrari for Formula One in Monaco. So those kind of things that take a bit more connections. And a lot of those times these things may not even have a a, a purchasable ticket that's what it's invite ask. Only. yeah so we turn around and go well you know what have we got to do so they may turn around and go well i need you to do this and i go okay and for us to do that may cost five grand and then we go well okay put our 10 percent on it it's now five thousand five hundred five hundred so we go back to the client and go look with commissions and fees and what we've got to do to make it happen it's going to cost you five five and a half grand yeah but is this something you want to proceed with and then they can go can i get it for four let me ask let me check you know you pay for what you get as far as I'm concerned. So, you know, I may go back to the person and go, look, can we do any better on that? And they may go, yeah. I go, look, I don't want to burn a bridge. Don't worry. And I'll go back to the client and go, no, can't be done. Yeah, you want it five and a half, you're in. You don't want it five and a half, that's fine, you know? So we charge, we will be very transparent, but they, they pay, there'll be a commission predominantly in everything else we do uh, that we provide to the client. And what's the model you're looking at for the new service? It's, uh, for starters, all app-based. So um, it's a response sensor that we've we've created. So it's a bluefish in the palm of your hand, smaller scalable model where you can interact with a, an AI platform. How how do you define failure? I never failed in my life. <laughs> I've never failed in my life. I don't, I, just know, I don't know if McKernan would agree, but yeah, no one listens to him. No one can understand what he's bloody saying. <laughs> um, I've never failed. I've just learned how not to do it, and I think that was probably again. I'm an Irish lad from East London. So I didn't grow up with intelligence. Now, I believe, and I would say proudly, I'm an educated man, but school had nothing to do with that. And I learned that when you fell over, you got back up. And it was as simple as that. So I don't believe, I don't believe that failing, I think failure is a bad word and people hang on to it. But I've just learned a million ways of not to do stuff. And so, you know, I'm quite happy to get on with that. And I try to teach my, teach my kids that. I don't like the word failure. How do you approach the fear of going into a new project? Or for somebody that maybe would come to you that's a early stage entrepreneur that wants to get into business, but they're scared of getting started, what's the advice you would give to them? I, I was fortunate. I spent many years, I'll try and answer this accurately. I spent many years... This is a dark moment now, so we should get the Kleenex out. I spent many years not liking my family and thinking that I had had a poor existence as a child in a construction firm in London, 
thinking that I never had money, resenting that I didn't have money. You know, we, I remember getting a new car once when I was a kid and it was 15 years old. And the family was over the moon because it was a new car. And I'm sitting there as a little kid, like eight years old, going, it's not new. It's 15 years old, you know. But to my family, it was a new car. And I just, I, yeah, I couldn't work it out. A new car is, it got built yesterday. You know, it smells like a new car. You know, this had like four owners and 15 dogs. So, but I remember resenting that. And it wasn't until I got older that I realized that the core values I had been taught as a child were more beneficial to me than anything I could have learned any, anywhere else. But I had wanted, desired, and lusted for growth. I hated being stagnant. I hated, I would hate if as we're doing this podcast now on Friday, I would hate if I had done nothing from last Friday any different. And that terrifies the shit out of me to know that a month from now, I'm going to have done stuff that's made me broaden my horizons, spoken to different people, in experience, different experience, had my eyes open to a new perspective, tried a new meal, tried a new sandwich, whatever, walked a different path. If I know a month from now, I haven't gained any of that, and I'm in exactly the same spot. And even if you fail, even if I take on 10 new projects and every single one of those fail, then I've learned a million things to do so that those don't happen again. I very, very rarely create the same mistake twice because I was educated the first time. So it's not a fear of starting a new business. It's a fear of being in the exact same position you were last week. That's what gets me going. That's a good perspective because like when I think about failure, I think the only, like you said, you don't even like that word. And I think I, I'm not, <laughs> I don't either, even though my podcast is called Fell On. But in my eyes, I think the only failure is, like you said, not not going, not not growing. But in my eyes, just not trying. Oh, yeah. Not even putting yourself out there. So did you, um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but do you know we did that big trip up the Silicon Valley for a bunch of clients? I don't know if you were following me on Facebook and all this stuff. So we had a bunch of clients from Australia that I look after and they do like two or three trips a year. This year, they wanted to do a Silicon Valley trip. So um, I took them to uh, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Microsoft, Apple, and the Tesla factory. Oh, and, and Impossible Burger, okay? And the first day was Microsoft. And we're walking through Microsoft, and there's this little funny little shed thing that didn't look as though it should have been there. And written on the side of it in like this big marker said garage. And when you walked in there, the rest of Microsoft was really sharp. You know, you couldn't see any cables. Everything was beautiful. The light in the carpet, everything was perfectly meticulous. This was like a shed. So you literally had like these old wire uh, shelves with the top of the range, 3D printers, VR glasses, absolutely everything in there. But it was decked out like it was a garage. And it was called The Garage. And when we went around Silicon Valley, they had them in Instagram. They had them in uh, Facebook. Uh, they had them in all these different areas that we went to. And so I remember speaking to a couple of people. And I said, I keep seeing these garages. And in the ones in Microsoft, they had a door. The ones in Facebook, they literally had an up and over, like a garage door. And I said to them, I said, you know, why do you have these? And they said, we know where we came from. So to just go back into the garage gets you back into your safe zone where, and this was the bit I like, you can fail comfortably. And they actually want you. You've got something. Go in there. 
and fail as many times as you like. They actually used that terminology. And I went, that's great. They said, there's all the machinery in there for you to be able to fail as far as you can dream. And then when you get it right, just let us know. And that was it. It was that little place to just go in, just screw up. And I really liked that. So they had the garage there. So I, I actually encourage people to find their own little place where they can fail comfortably. Like give yourself permission to just go at it. Go for it. Dare to dream. Dare to try something different. And if it doesn't work, you just learn how not to do it. Who's had the single most profound impact on your life? If you had to pinpoint one person from your, could be from your current, from your past, just across your life. Well, it's got to be my wife. My wife has just had, you know, she's, she's, she calls herself five foot five. She's five foot four. She's just this tiny little framed powerhouse. And this is the girl that every now and then will just give me a little look and go, you're going to stop sobbing and get on with it. You know, she, <laughs> she's just that person that yeah. just knows you so well that, you know, when all of a sudden a bit of bravado comes up, she's the one that just kind of like gets through that little armor and just tweaks and says, all right, you know, stop puffing your chest now. Now get on with it. How long have you been married? Oh, God, forever. Uh, <laughs> I met her when she was 17. Oh, I was wow. 18, 17. So we've been together for absolutely ever. Where three you- kids, three different countries, you know, half a dozen passports, you know. So, yeah, we've, we've been been through it all. Each kid was born in a different country? Each, each oh, child. Wow. Yeah, many people pick up fridge magnets or souvenirs. Yeah. We just picked up passports <laughs> and kids. So, yeah, each child was born in a different country. Which, which countries, if you don't mind me asking? Well, one was in uh, the UK, but lived with us in Hong Kong. But, you know, it was Britain at the time. Switzerland and uh, Palm Beach. Got it. So we've got an American, a Swiss, and a, and a Brit. <laughs> got quite the lot. Yeah, yeah. So if you had to, if you had to think about the last time that you really got outside your comfort zone, what was that? Whether you consciously did it on purpose or whether well, it was I do just... do it on purpose. Okay. Uh, again, I don't want to like be stagnant. Like you said, I want to grow. grow. The last time that I got out of my comfort zone was this morning. So um, we're trying to produce this this new membership program that I told you about. And there's a lot of APIs and feeds that are coming into it and uh, flows and conversation flowcharts. Two weeks ago, you could have mentioned those words to me and I would have thought they were characters out of Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> but now I'm trying to understand the parameters of the appropriate feeds. And I'm trying to make sure the conversation flow and an AI program work. And I don't know what I'm talking about. And I'm looking at it and I've got my developers doing it. And I'm going, well, why does that go there? And they go, oh, because it does. Oh, okay. But why? You know, and I want, you know, I'm the kid with the lollipop. You know, I want a lollipop. Why? Why? Until I get my lollipop. And so I want to know, why, why is that? And then when they tell me, why can't we go down that way? Because it doesn't work. Okay, fine. Now, I know I've wasted his time for half an hour. And they're very happy once we're off our daily call. But um, I'm sure as hell there's some kind of uh, a picture up there where they're throwing darts at me or something. But I'm I'm really enjoying the growth of understanding what a what a feed is and understanding where where they where they benefit where they don't uh, how to overcomplicate it what not to import so I'm really enjoying that comfort zone that um, as of today a month later I'm smarter than I was and I'm I'm into new stuff you know I think that's it's an also an interesting point whether like when you talk about growth and doing new stuff each week it's it doesn't have to be like business related that can just be learning any new skill really because i think when you go through the process of like we were in the bahamas with with your favorite person philip mckernan and a bunch of people from mastermind talks and i had never been on a stand-up paddleboard 
and it was like in this, it was very calm water most days, but the paddleboard was most are, I think, foam. This was actually like a blow up one, which was, it was really, right. it's really tight, but it was, I guess, a bit harder to do than a typical paddleboard. Was it? Okay. Cause they're not easy to start with. Right. So this is the only one I've been on. So I don't really have a frame <laughs> of reference, but like, it took me like three days to actually like get up there and like be able to like stand up and like actually row. But it was just like going through that process. I was like, man, I like, it's just fun failing. Like, mm-hmm falling getting back on and just like yeah. how, do, how do i do this better how do i stay up why is it not working just that process is a lot of fun that i think people will lose touch with that because they just they go do. through the busyness of their life and they don't look for those opportunities well it hasn't got to be as as, as dramatic as you know learning apis or hasn't right. got to be as as exotic as learning paddleboarding if you're walking your dog go down a different road you know literally go a different route if you've got your favorite sandwich bar that sandwich bar became your favorite sandwich bar because you found it. Try a different one. And if you find out that that sandwich sucks, you've just taught yourself that that sandwich bar is shit. So I, I like that. And we, we do that we do that a lot. So it doesn't have to be big and exotic. I remember, my again, my dad, he would come out with these, these sayings. And you know, like all kids, you look at them and you go, bloody hell you want about? And then like 20 years later, it kind of like rings true in your oh, head. Yeah. And I remember he turned around and he said, the fight's not over when I go down, son. It's over when I stop getting up. And of course, like he was a big Irish boy that you know just loved a Friday tussle. So I just thought he was being brave. But then I realized, yeah, I get your point now. So I can go down many times, but you know, it's when I stop getting up, that's the problem. I like that. So outside of the new project, that you're doing the software what else is on the horizon for you that you're most excited about whether it's business or personal everything reflects to my personal life you know i won't do anything that uh, uh deteriorates that at all something very exciting came up about a year ago where i was approached about doing a book and i spoke to tucker um tucker was actually very uh, integral in kind of like helping me with that i spoke to jason and uh, i spoke to mckernan and uh, my book comes out in October. Oh, amazing. And I was like, damn. And that was, that was again, another interesting project. You know, how do you, how do, you do a book? How is a book constructed? You know, how is it designed? How is it marketed? How is it positioned? You know, I was learning about um, shelf space and shelf, shelf life. Oh, no, we can't be in a certain kind of range of self-help because, you know, that's got a short-term shelf life. So, but if, if we tweak the book, to be more business entrepreneurial, then it can sit there longer. So it's just all these kind of things. And Scott Hoffman and Frank uh, got me with Folio, got me with uh, Simon Schuster. So my first ever book came out with the largest publishing house in the planet. And that comes out in October. So I'm in June. In June, I'm in New York and I'm up at CNBC and we're doing a lot of footage and stuff like that, getting ready to start promoting it. What's the book on? It's called Blue Fishing, The Art of Making Things Happen. So it's just the um, the stupid, simple little things that I've learned, and kind of like you know inviting you to get into my headspace. It's not; it's a bit complicated up there sometimes, um, <laughs> but uh, it's very simple. Oh, I try to keep things simple because if it's not simple, I can't do it. So there's some lessons in there. I hope that uh, people will be be able to take, and you know whether you're trying to kind of like send someone to the International Space Station or stick them on stage with Lady Gaga, you know you can use these. Or if you're trying to kind of like grow a relationship or build a, uh, a build a rapport or try and identify what it is that is your passion, your passion project. Um, hopefully these are going to be able to help. 
Did you use Tucker's company? Tucker, no. Tucker introduced me to Scott. Did a, um, I spoke to Tucker and Tucker did a one pager and sent it over to them. So I don't think I did the full got it uh, project with those guys. I know other people have, and I've I've understood and heard nothing but brilliant things mm. from them. I think McKernan's doing one with them right now. Is it? He's doing a book. Yeah. Yeah. Is it a pop up? <laughs> Probably. Probably. Yeah. Uh. Middle page is big Guinness bottle just shoots up. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, I don't want to take too much more of your time. So thanks for <laughs> thanks for joining me, Steve. Appreciate it, man. It's been great. Thanks. All right. So you can find Steve at Steve D. Sims on Twitter. That's at Steve D. Sims. And of course, that spelling, along with all the links and resources Steve and I discussed, including more information on his company, Bluefish, as well as his latest book, can be found at the page we created especially for this episode. That'll be at failon.com slash 035. And next week, we are sitting down with my friend, Rob Cosberg. Rob is a marketing and brand building expert, a best-selling author, a syndicated radio show host, and a stud real estate broker with over $250 million in negotiated transactions. Rob now specializes in helping his clients become the go-to experts in their respective fields through his company, Bestseller Publishing. We'll be discussing how Rob got his start in business, how he had to totally rebuild himself in 2008 after the financial crisis and his toughest challenges along the journey to get to the top of his field, where he's at now. And if the podcast is providing value to your life and your business, please email me at rob at I'd love to hear about what your biggest takeaway has been from this episode, as well as the podcast as a whole. And I'd even be happy to go into learning more about your business and how I can be more of service to you. And as I continue to build Phelan with the goal of helping employees become entrepreneurs through high ticket coaching and consulting businesses, I'd be really grateful for a couple things that seem small, but matter so much to me. Subscribing to the podcast takes a single click and helps the show get found by more people. And obviously when more people can find the show, it means it can help more people, which in return means you are helping people by simply subscribing. To subscribe and rate and review the podcast really easy, please just visit failon.com slash iTunes or failon.com slash Stitcher. That's all for this episode of the Fail On Podcast. For more resources, show notes, and action items to help you find success in your failures, sign up for our mailing list at failon.com. For more actionable inspiration, we'll catch you next time right here on the Fail On Podcast.